The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. Continuing our study of pleasure. A student once asked Master Zhao Zhao, has a dog the Buddha nature or not? And Zhao Zhao said, Mu. Woman's commentary. In studying Zen, one must pass the barrier set up by ancient masters. For the attainment of incomparable satori, one has to cast away their discriminating mind. Those who have not passed the barrier and have not cast away the discriminating mind are like phantoms haunting trees and plants. Now tell me, what is the barrier of the ancient masters? Just this mu. It is the barrier of Zen. It is thus called the gateless barrier of Zen. Those who have passed the barrier will not only, pass, will not only see Zhao Zhou clearly, but will go hand in hand with all of the ancestors of the past, seeing them face to face. You'll see with the same eye that they see and will hear with the same ear. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Don't you want to pass this barrier? Then concentrate yourself into this move with your 360 bones and 84,000 pores, making your whole body one great inquiry. Day and night, work intently at it. Don't attempt nihilistic or dualistic interpretations. It's like having bolted a red-hot iron ball. You try to vomit it out, but you can't. Cast away your illusory discriminating knowledge and consciousness accumulated up to now and keep on. After a while, when your efforts come to fruition, all the opposition, such as inside and outside, will naturally be identified. You will then be like a mute person who has had a wonderful dream. Only you know it personally, within yourself. Suddenly you break through the barrier. You will astonish heaven, shake the earth. It's as if you had snatched the great sword of the General Quan. <clears throat> you kill the Buddha if you meet the Buddha. You kill the ancient masters if you meet them. On the brink of life and death, you're free. And in the six realms and the four modes of life, you live with great joy, a genuine life and complete freedom. Now, how should you strive? With might and main, work at this mu and be mu. If you don't stop or waver in your striving, then behold, when the Dharma candle is lighted, darkness is at once enlightened. <clears throat> Poem. The dog, the Buddha nature, the truth is manifested in full. A moment of yes and no, lost, are your body and soul. Bet you weren't expecting that. <laughs> Previous talks, it's been mentioned or alluded to that um, the Buddha acknowledged the ordinary pleasures that we all know and enjoy, and cautioned against expecting more of them than they more from them than they can offer, and also pointed to a much deeper pleasure 
contentment, fulfillment, serenity, tranquility, completion. I was thinking as you were, Sean was talking yesterday about uh, being young and the girl who doesn't know. And I was remembering a story, I think it was Jack Cornfield, told a story I think that was told to him of a family that was out to dinner. Parents, a young daughter, eight years old or so. And the waitress came and took the parents' order and then said, what do you want, honey? And she said, I want a hot dog, french fries, and a big Coke. And the parents said, oh, no, no, you're going to have the meatloaf and the mashed potatoes and a glass of milk. And the waitress looked at the parents and then looked at the girl and said, "Hun, what do you want on that hot dog? (laughs) (laughs) Does a dog have Buddha nature or not? This koan is uh, thought to have originated with Zhao Zhou. Once he responded to that question, the door of every house leads to the capital. The door of every house leads to the capital, to the heart. The question is, what is that door? How do we find our way through it? So the Buddha understood that there was, that was no small challenge because, as he said, the storm is cannot be perceived by the senses. It is subtle. Cannot be known in our ordinary way. So how do we experience self-nature? Satori means to realize self-nature, your basic nature. Every morning when we chant the Heart Sutra, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, sensation, conception, discrimination, awareness. Those skandhas, basically constitute you. That's what you are, as Buddhism understands it. That's how we create, moment after moment, our sense of personhood. It's a process. It's a path that leads from one moment to the next, where the senses, in concert with some sense organ or sense sense object and consciousness, goes through a very fast, very quick, and very profound process of identifying of pain or pleasure, response, of naming, of organizing, putting it into its place, and then of creating a strategy. More, less, avoid, grasp. So how do we break free of that, given that that's, those are our basic instruments, which the Buddha says we cannot use to encounter our true nature, which is, the Buddha realized and taught, ultimately what liberates us. And so he taught that we have to clean up our house, we have to live well, we have to make good choices, which originate from Good intentions, right intentions. Right meaning those that are actually skillful. Skillful means in accord with the way things actually work. And that we have to cultivate that, develop that, strengthen that, live that in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, because that's how we 
changed and create and change the world. And so we have to be engaging in the moral, in our moral being, our moral life. That's why when we practice together, implicit, really explicit, because it's in the Doshinji Code, is that we are all agreeing that we're going to follow the precepts. I hope. We don't actually tell you that when you first come here. <laughs> we should. It's in the Doshinji Code. A lot of people don't look at that. But that everybody who's here is expected to follow the precepts. To live well. And when we don't, to take responsibility for that. And then that goes hand in hand and is interdependent with the state of our mind. And so when the mind is agitated and restless and confused, it's going to be very difficult to think and speak and act, but from there. And so to settle that, honestly, authentically, that's why suppression and denial and avoidance doesn't work, and that's why just continuing on as before doesn't work. There is a middle path. And so concentration and samadhi coming out of mindfulness is essential. It's part of every meditation practice in Buddhism, as are the precepts, if not explicitly, implicitly, in terms of how you sit in your body, how you meet yourself. That's why when we meet ourselves critically and with harsh judgment or we're judging others, we're not doing that. We're not practicing the precepts. We're not practicing living well. We're creating the very things that we're trying to free ourselves of. And so compassion, the precepts are present in our zazen, even if we're not you know, thinking of them in terms of the, the precepts themselves. And the Buddha said that when we experience different and deep states of concentration, deepening states of concentration, think of it as a continuum, that that will transform. You know that. You've had some experience of that, even if you're just beginning. And even if those moments were fleeting. Something happens. You know, years ago, when Dada Roshi was, was it, <laughs> there were no seniors, there were no senior talks, there's nobody else doing face-to-face teaching. He gave talks every day of session, starting on Tuesday, and Doksan every day. And he did that for years. God bless him for that. And at a certain point, he commented, and he said, you know, on Tuesday of session, everybody's just grouchy. Right? They're all tangled up in like what they came in with and what's going on and who's sitting next to them. And he said, Doksan is just really not a pleasant experience. <laughs> and so he stopped giving Doksan on Tuesday. Voila. <laughs> and he said, by Wednesday, it's okay. <laughs> Nothing's really changed, but people are just coming in in a different way. And so we have maintained that. <laughs> But this question, so samadhi, concentration, we know that that transformative, it, it's, you know, too much of the time what, we, what we're seeking and what we're wanting to hold on to. And that's understandable. 
And there's a truth to that because we do want to continue to develop a kind of constancy and stability on and off the cushion. So that's actually true, but we cannot preserve it because by definition, it's a state, it's an experience that is conditioned. It is a result of our meditation. It is impermanent. You can't keep it. And so its transformational qualities or aspects are valid but temporary in a certain sense. As that becomes more and more one's natural state, then that aspect goes with you. But ultimately, it only goes so far. Why? Because in a way, what is being calmed is thoughts, emotions, confusing thoughts, bewildering thoughts, strong emotions, overwhelming emotions, the kleshas. But our basic view of things can still be intact. We can still be very much seeing the world in terms of self and other. I exist. You're outside. Things have their own power. All of the sort of signs of delusion. Samadhi doesn't uproot that. Insight does. And so from the very beginning, the Buddha said, these three elements of training, the precepts, the compassion, the Developing of concentration, samadhi, and prajna is ultimately liberates us because we see that the basis of all of those aspects of our delusion are based on false notions. They, they're not based on anything that is true. Or rather, they're, they're as, was it Yudo or Yunan said, or Gokhan said, it's real. We're having the experience within our delusion, but it's not true. And we realize it's not true. And so the question then for the Buddha and all the way down is recognizing that in many schools, in our branch of Buddhism, meditation is seen as is the most powerful, most direct path. Okay, so what do you do in your meditation? What is meditation such that it helps to bring you to and cultivate and strengthen to full fruition those three elements of training? Your compassion, your natural stability of mind, your concentration, and your understanding. And so the history of Buddhist meditation is basically that. Throughout the history, beginning with the Buddha, different teachings, different practices, different perspectives, and the koan is one aspect of that. Because the koan brings in all three of those elements. It's zazen, first and foremost. foremost it's zazen. When a student is sitting with a koan, they're, they're doing zazen. It's, they're not in some other realm. And so everything that is important in zazen, from the beginning to the end, is important in working with the koan. They are developing their concentration. That, ha- that is a continuum. As far as I can tell, that never bottoms out. I was going to say, if I reach the bottom, I'll let you know. But why... <laughs> Father. <laughs> and so that is very important because the student holds the koan, the inquiry, the question in their mind in a meditative state of concentration. Otherwise, they're just thinking. <clears throat> and then it's not really going to help them. And it is a very sort of deliberate and right in front of you, 
path of inquiry. And Wuman in his commentary, which is really the longest commentary in the Wumenkan, interesting, given that it's the shortest koan in the whole collection. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Don't you want to pass this barrier? He's inviting you in. into that inquiry, because that's what the koan is, it's inquiry. If it's not an inquiry for the student, it's not a koan. It's words, it might be a mantra, but it's not inquiry. So really it's, when you think about what do you do, what are you doing with your discontent? What are you doing with your lack of fulfillment? and satisfaction, and peacefulness, and calm, and understanding. We're all doing something with all of those elements. Evidence the world, the human world. That's what we're doing with what is essentially, existentially, the question of how to be in this life, how to live, what is life? And the Buddha realized it all comes down to the question of who. Because everything without help, not everything, but much, much, much will tend to be self-referential. The answer to the question who is me. First. And so the koan takes us into that very question, into that inquiry, with the most powerful f- force in the human realm, which is your mind in a state of concentration. In the human world, there's nothing more powerful than that. Incisive all-encompassing, all-inclusive, non-dual. And so in that way, the koan can be a very, very powerful tool, a very powerful practice. Mu is, of course, one of the iconic koans, which is a bit unfortunate, (laughs) you know, because the more known something is, the more it becomes, you know, bought and sold turned into something else, commodified. That's what we do. So it's better for students who are interested in actually practicing, be careful what you read. (laughs) Be careful how much you read, how much you take in. Because ultimately, it'll help maybe some, the best of it, but at worst, it can actually just add more confusion. There is thinking, there is not thinking. Dogen said there is thinking, non-thinking. There is calming the mind, there is quieting the habit of our discriminating consciousness, our impulsive reactions. Woman is speaking to that directly. Don't attempt nihilistic or dualistic interpretations. Free yourself, cast away your discriminating consciousness. 
10th century Tibetan master Tashi Namgyal said, you must begin to investigate the nature of mind. So this investigation is a part of all Buddhist meditation practice. It shows up in different ways, different ways in the early tradition, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, in the Zen tradition, in terms of how it, how it appears in the teachings, how it's presented in the practices. He says, you must begin to investigate the nature of mind in relation to what you perceive through your senses and through what you understand about the structure of consciousness. In other words, you have to begin based on the basis of what you know. He says, but then you will see that you cannot apprehend mind, Buddha mind, your true mind, in the same way that you apprehend sensory objects or inner mental states. You just can't. And it's not your fault. (laughs) You can't because it can't be done. Because this mind that we are trying to apprehend, which means to directly experience, to know, beyond knowing, beyond idea, can't be touched with the senses, because the senses touch things. There's you and there's it. That doesn't liberate us from duality. It establishes it. And so this inquiry, this practice, begins conceptually with our understanding, but we get to the point where we realize, hopefully, and gain trust in that I cannot do this using the, the same tools, my thoughts, my ideas, you know, um, I'm not going to get this. And that's the basis, essentially, of all Dharma practice. How, do we, how are we skillfully led, how do we lead ourselves to this point, in essence, of departure? Given that what you're departing into, you can't know. That's the thing. You can't know it. Because otherwise, it's in the realm of your senses. So you go, when you go from one place to an, another unknown place, it's unknown, but it's got all, all kinds of things in it. And it very quickly becomes another known place. This is not that. And the Cohen literature, um, I wish I had more time, but, um, (laughs) you know, these Cohen's, everything comes out of a time, right? I mean, it seems self-evident, but we should remember that. Everything comes out of a time. The development of these Cohen's as a way of training within the Chan tradition came out of a time. And in that time, Teachers and monasteries and centers and branches of different branches of Buddhism, well-established, emerging, needed to have support to establish themselves, to distinguish themselves from other schools so that they, because otherwise, why are they a branch? And so that happens within the koan tradition too. And so when, when in this commentary by Wuman, where he presents it in such magnificent terms. You will break through the barrier and astonish heaven and shake the earth. If you meet the Buddha, you will kill the Buddha. If you meet the ancient ancestors, you will kill them. On the brink of life and death, you are utterly free. And in the six realms and four modes, you live with great joy. 
And there are many, many teachings that point to that, not just in the Zen tradition. And it naturally sort of creates a sense, if you have this experience, all of that is going to be true like that. And the thing is, there's an element of truth in it. What has been seen is complete. What has been realized is complete. The realization is not. Do you understand? What has been seen itself is complete. It is the totality. It is a Prajnaparamita. It is the basis of our liberation. But our realization of it is not yet complete. Dadaroshi used to say it's like looking out on an early morning and there's something large at the other edge of the field. It's got four legs. Is it a horse? Is it a cow? Is it a big wolf? You're not sure because it's misty. The thing itself is complete. But your ability to see it is not. You see something. And that's valid. That's real. And then our capacity to live it is also not complete, and usually less complete in, in observable ways. Harmonizing, as Dogen said, inner and outer. So that's just the way it is. Again, it's no one's fault. And so when we read these encounters, particularly in the Koan tradition, where there's a question, there's a response, the student is enlightened, and there's a sense of, okay, that's done. And now they live happily ever after and are completely manifesting Buddha Dharma and the great heart of compassion and never encounter any more barriers. That's not true. At least I've never met anybody like that. And I ain't anybody like that. <laughs> and so, but thank goodness there's training. Thank goodness that there is a path that already understands that. And we continue. And then it becomes more and more clear. And so the, the danger of this is particularly in our culture that's so me-oriented and so sort of what's the next high experience I can have? Well, what's better than this? And so if you just bust your ass to have this experience, you're willing to do that because, you know, then it's done. So we need to really free ourselves. Do ourselves a huge favor and free ourselves of that. Sometimes people reconcile that wrongly by saying, none of this is true. And really, you know, I was a schmuck before, I'm a schmuck after. And, you know, but I'm a practicing schmuck. You know? Or, you know, it's like I'm still like a train wreck, but, you know, at least I, like, clean the windows and, you know, swept the floor. Come on. Is that what's brought it down all this time? Was that enough to, like, generate years and years of selfless giving to pass on the light? Of course not. A function of the koan, particularly as developed in 
in, um, as the koan tradition developed, was doubt. And doubt in Buddhism is not self-doubt. That's our thing. And I don't think we should consider that it's a uniquely Western thing. But it's a big Western thing. It's a big American thing. Right? I mean, why not? You should be exceptional, right? You should be a leader. Everyone should be the leader, the leader of their pack. Everyone should be at the top of their game. Everyone should be a billionaire. What's wrong with you if you're not? It's ridiculous. And so that kind of doubt that is manufactured to keep us unhappy, right, and consumers, um, is not what we're talking about. Not what Buddhism is talking about. Buddhism is talking about what do you do with your discontent, that doubt. When you're at the point where you're no longer willing to accept what you shouldn't accept. You're no longer buying the story that you shouldn't be buying. You're no longer trying to live that story, although you've tried. And you means all of us. That doubt. And so the koan takes that distress, that dis-ease, that inner disruption, and disrupts it. Puts you directly into it. You know, the koan, the uh, kanji character from Mu looks like a prison cell. Well, prison bars. That's why it's spoken of as the impenetrable barrier being between two iron mountains. That is poetic, but it's not just poetic. Because you are facing yourself in the deepest way. And as Wu Man says, if it's alive, you want to know. You want to know. And it's not a casual thing. And it is like bolting a red-hot iron ball that you can't vomit out. And so the koan is intended to basically bring that forth, use it. Why? Because there's tremendous life force in that energy. It has to be focused. And it has to be focused well. That's why you've been developing your meditation. That's why you're practicing the precepts. So we don't go at this like a war against ourselves. Nor do we go at it like the next prize to be obtained. But we do. We do. One does. I've never met any student yet, including myself, who didn't go to it that way. Of course. What have we learned to do? How have we accomplished our goals? By establishing them as a clear goal, out there, up there, over there, and proceeding to obtain it, to get it. As Schoen said, in its worst, at all costs. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who has to fall along the way. Right? Because it's mine. 
When we practice it that way, you are behind those prison cells, those prison bars. Right? But we don't know it. We don't know that we are facing our mind, that we are actually facing in a much deeper way, much more explicitly, the stuff of our discontent. We tend to think, why is the teacher doing this to me? Or why is the koan doing this? Or why does this have to be so hard? It's not hard. (laughs) We're hard. It, actually, is so simple and so close that we experience it as one of the most difficult things. So what we're really encountering is our own complexity. All of the 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 streams and byways of our karma, what we're seeing is how we live, how we respond to things. How do we desire something? How do we proceed to enter into that path when it really matters? How do we meet what we experience as rejection? Because that's one of the things, you know, Chosen Roshi's, a pediatrician, and she used to do a lot of, um, she worked with a lot of young children who had been abused. And so she often testified in court on behalf of the children as a pediatrician who had worked with them. And she said she would just get, that the, the, the attorneys, the, uh, pro, the attorneys would try to be, just eviscerate her, you know, discredit her, to tear her down. And she said she was so grateful for all of her experience of going into Doksan, and her teacher saying, no, that's not it. Ring the bell of being rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected. And of course, we think of it as rejection. What's wrong with me? Why can't, and I, I, I mean, I went into Dido more than once and apologized. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm such a shithead. I'm sorry I'm so thick-headed. I'm sorry I'm no good at this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And he was just, I don't know, bored. Not buying it, not interested particularly. He knew that there was something else going on, and he knew that I was facing me and not liking it. Master Dawei, uh, 12th century, 11th century, 12th century Chinese master really brought the koan in, in the Linji school into sort of prominence. And one of the things he did was he taught what's called the Huato, which is to take the whole koan, does a dog have Buddha nature? Zhao says, Mu. And bring it down to its pith. And so when the student sits with the koan, what they sit with is, what is Mu? They're not actually sitting with the story, the dialogue, the dog, Buddha nature. They're just sitting with what is Mu. That it's like all of the The strength, the power is reduced to this one, brought down to this one essential element, without which it's not a koan. And that became a very sort of um, important part of koan training. It comes down to us here. It was very important in Korean Zen. Tashi Namgyal said, up to this point, we've been using thoughts and concepts to examine the mind, but when we exhaust all possibilities, the non-conceptual insight is a result. And that's what the koan helps us to do. 
We try every conceivable, every conceptual, every rational, every logical way to respond to it. And the teacher just says, no, that's not it. Keep working. No, that's not it. Keep working. He says, the teacher generally says, my teacher basically only said there wasn't really much to say. He just skipped saying, bimu. That was it. I'm, I think, a little bit more indulgent. So, but we reach the point when we have exhausted that, and we realize that there, we're at the point, Dada used to say, it short circuits your intellectual mind. Right? Like the lights go out. Can't rely on that anymore. But of course, you always can. And so it has to do with faith, and like just, it's a kind of austerity where you just know that that's not going to bring you closer. And at that point, the compassion, the development that you've done with the precepts, your development of your concentration, now begins to bring you into a non-conceptual mind, which is your mind, all the time, present. But not so easily available, because we rely on our senses so much. Namgyal said it has the quality of space. It's open, it's vast, boundless. That's samadhi. It has the quality of the sun. It's radiant, incisive, prajna. It's luminous. All of these adjectives that describe the discerning aspect of nine. Not discriminating. It's not dividing. It's not categorizing. It's not naming. It's discerning. It's clear seeing. Because without that awareness... There can be no insight. So when we're sitting, we're not trying to disappear, for instance, into the breath. That can happen naturally, and that's okay. Right? At some point, your self-awareness will return. You'll hear a sound or feel something, and your awareness comes That's fine. But we're not trying to disappear, because in that state of samadhi, when there is no, no non-conceptual awareness, there can be no insight. Right? There can be no way to experience or see something. And so it's really the merging of concentration and insight. And that's what all of these practices in Buddhist meditation are ultimately bringing us to. And you can't will it to happen, right? You can't make yourself enter into your non-conceptual mind because you're using the very stuff of the mind that separates and objectifies and is now objectifying a non-conceptual mind to obtain it. So it can't, it won't bring you closer. It has to happen, Dogen says, by forgetting. Dawei says, do not grasp another's bow. Do not ride another's horse. Do not meddle in another's affairs. Just examine yourself ceaselessly from morning to night. What do you do to help others and help yourself? Which brings us back back to pleasure. All of this is to free ourselves in the deepest way possible of that which prevents us from helping others and ourselves or severely limits it. 
It's what makes it very difficult to experience simple pleasures in their full because we want more. And so all of this very sort of austere-seeming practice right, to let go of everything. Sometimes people say, I don't want that. Right? I want to be in the world in a different way. I want that for you too. This is the path that the Buddha laid out. And we have to understand that it is not leaving anything behind. It is entering into everything unencumbered. And in order to enter unencumbered, we have to unencumber ourselves. <laughs> that way it says, if you notice the slightest partiality or insensitivity, relinquish it. Partiality is grasping right, at what we want. Insensitivity is shutting it all down. Avoid those extremes. Don't practice the middle way. He says, don't be careless about this. Examine the one who covets wealth and rank. Where does that person come from? Where do they go? Right when you're confused and unhappy, in the midst of your very discontent, here is where to take up the question, what is it? Within that doubt, within that, unhappiness. And so in a sense, session is the time with the precepts and the silence and not engaging each other that we might learn to mind our own business. Right? You're okay. The person next to you is okay. The person behind you is okay. We actually have two people at the door to make sure that that's true, right? So that if someone is not okay, we'll take care of it. And that solitude, allowing you to enter into your own business, is not isolation, right? And so when you bow to your seat, the person next to you bows back. When the server brings you good food, you bow to them in gratitude. After the meal, you go and clean the dishes. That solitude, when it becomes so complete that Mu is a mountain, right? That whatever the inquiry is, whatever that the, whatever your your the merging of your concentration and your non-conceptual mind brings you to is a mountain that fills heaven and earth. There is no self in other. There is no distress, no discontent, no wanting, no lacking. And you didn't create that. You didn't give it birth, and it cannot die. That's why it's liberating. You can't create it, and you can't make it go away. But it has to be realized. And it has to be experienced again and again and again. And from the very beginning of practice, 
we begin having insights. We begin seeing things we have not seen before about ourselves, about others, about the way things work. And so in that sense, insight is not just seen into self-nature, but it's seen aspects of self-nature all along. We don't necessarily recognize them as such, but they are. Because there's only one jewel. When woman says, cast away your illusory discriminating consciousness accumulated up till now and keep on practicing diligently. Cast away means when it arises, let it pass. And discriminatory consciousness is the mind that sees, that seizes, that grasps, that appropriates, that rejects, that names, that wants. All of the, the busyness, right? all of the activity is our discriminating consciousness. To cast it away means when you see it arise, just let it pass. Let it pass means don't follow after it. And don't follow after it means have no opinion. Don't love it. Don't hate it. And that's not as simple as it sounds, is it? Because in that moment when it arises, you don't say, okay, I think I'm going to love this now. Or, oh, yeah, I'm going to hate this. That's not what happens. There's just love, wanting. There's just, ugh, go away. There's no sense of a choice being made. Those choices have been made a 100,000 times already. That's why we speak of the habit mind. But the good news is that in the moment it arises, it has no karma because you have not intentionally brought it into being. In the moment that you are aware of it and you respond, now you're creating karma. So that moment is actually quite important. Think of it as a pivot moment. You either pivot back into the same groove or you don't. And so when you meet it without rejection, insensitivity, as Dawei said, or without preference, without wanting more, and you just meet it as it is. And you do that in, to, in whatever degree you can. So maybe you really do want it, and you do follow after it a little bit, but then you notice, and you that's also pivoting. Right? So don't think in terms of absolutes. You either succeeded or failed. That's the mindset we're trying to free ourselves of. So when we meet it in practice, in that moment, even though we may still be under the power of it, it's shifting. Namjo says, this discovery cannot be compared to our normal experiences. It's inexpressible, incommunicable, and impossible to formulate. And that's just the nature of it. Water cannot describe wetness. 
The sky cannot describe spaciousness. But that's okay, because there's another kind of knowing, another kind of understanding, which our natural mind already knows. And so we're just coming back. We're just returning. We're just reclaiming something long lost. That's why I imagine many of us have had that experience of something new and strange and something familiar at the same time. It's like learning a new language that you don't know how to speak, but there are moments where you think, I know this. There was a student of Dawei's, Fajen, who was a laywoman. She was widowed. Her husband had died. She lived with her son. And her son had a visit from a Chan adept. And they would sit around and talk about the Dharma. And she was very interested. And she had lived her life very simply. She wasn't interested in a lot of worldly things. And one day she asked this adept about his teacher's method, Dawei's method. And he said, the master usually just has people observe the saying, a dog has no Buddha nature. He doesn't allow them to make comments or to think about it. And she was so intrigued by that, she began sitting with it on her own. She was studying with Dawei and he didn't even know it. She was doing the koan before she might have even known what a koan was. She had that doubt already. It's like the tinder was there, perfectly dried and prepared, and all it needed was just a little spark. And she sat with it and sat with it, and it says subsequently investigating this, suddenly one day her mind became clear with no sticking points. And she communicated, she sent, wrote a verse of her experience and sent it to Dawei. She said, all day long, reading the words of the scriptures, it's like meeting an old acquaintance. Don't say doubts arise again and again. Each time it's brought up, it's brand new. Now, when she was reading the teachings, it was like meeting an old acquaintance. Oh, why didn't you say so before? <laughs> And it said that Dawei was delighted and that she had met his mind without knowing it, that he had met her mind. And then eventually, I couldn't get any more information than this, um, but that she studied with him and became a successor. One of those great enlightened beings, enlightened women who is not quite forgotten or unsung. The thing to appreciate is that the koan is direct inquiry. Shikantahasa has that element. The breath practice can have that element. Sometimes it's very sort of conscious, almost self-conscious as the koan is. And other times it's very, it's very subtle. It can be as subtle as just having that deep desire to understand and that that comes into your awareness that keeps it bright 
and discerning, not discriminating, but discerning. And that's why it's so important in Zazen that those elements of the calming and the settling and the lucidity, the brightness, the incisive nature of your awareness are both being brought forward, right? So when you get dull, sharpen it. Come back to life. When you're too tight, relax. The dog, the Buddha nature, the truth is manifested in full. A moment of yes and no, and lost are your body and soul. That when we grab onto and get mired in seeing the world in ourselves in terms of gain and success, having, not having, me and you, as the absolute truth, the only truth, the defining truth, then lost are our body and our mind and our soul and our heart. Not quite lost. Not lost at all, actually. Always here, always present, always calling. Bodhicitta is that deepest part of ourselves calling us in. How does it speak? Your discontent. Your non-acceptance of what should not be accepted. You're not believing in the story that more will bring you there. That's how bodhicitta speaks. And so, in these last evening and tomorrow morning of session, let's stay steady, right? Let's not get hung up in thinking about tomorrow. Just think about what has the whole week been about, right? Now, be here now, so that we really... Not just so we don't distract ourselves, so that we're practicing how to carry something all the way through. And not start suddenly looking for the next thing. Carry it all the way through. And let's appreciate the, the profound nature of this path that we have encountered that understands you so well. Oh, my Lord. Understands us so well. And more is offering you a door. Every door leads to the capital. The capital and the troublemaker are you. And that's the good news. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.